In the name of Jesus, amen. In recent days, I'm sure you either have seen on your television or perhaps if you were surfing the web, a courtroom viral video. In this video that's been seemingly shared all across the internet is a man who asks the presiding judge if it would be possible, if it would be permissible to embrace the woman convicted of murdering his brother. The image of a criminal and a victim hugging is a rare thing, but what's even more astonishing than this embrace is that the victim's brother forgave her. It's a powerful thing to witness, to witness what Christians do, what we're all about, what we live for, forgiveness. This wasn't uh, the first time I've seen something like this. Uh, I was listening in my uh, car at a truck back then, all those days. <laughs> I was listening about uh, a, 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 uh, on a radio station, a radio channel, that had another similar story about a father whose daughter was murdered. A remarkable story about this man who forgave and befriended the criminal who murdered his daughter. And even to this day, he goes and he visits this man who will never see the outside of prison. These episodes of forgiveness put to shame those who refuse to forgive. As painful and as disgusting as these crimes are, something compelled the victim's family to forgive. Mercy. Mercy is not receiving what is deserved. Mercy is not receiving what is deserved. Mercy is forgiving what ought to be unforgivable. Mercy is a rare thing. Mercy allows us to view life beyond death, beyond sick and gross things, beyond what we may think are unforgivable sins. Mercy allows us to live in this world this world full of sin, with a heart that is set on things beyond this world, with a heart that is heavenly minded. Mercy is at the heart of our worship and drips off of our lips as we sing of Christ's merciful work to redeem us and set us free from sin and temptation. Jesus said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. These words remind us that our world isn't all that it should be, that God's good creation has received a blow that temptations to sin are the unfortunate norm that we must endure. Jesus' words also remind us of another thing, that he is in charge, 
that he has the divine authority over the tempters of our age, yes, even over the devil himself, whose temptations have buried way too many unbelievers. Woe to the ones who cause God's children to sin and die in unbelief. It would be better if they didn't live to cause such evil and wickedness. And that's the rub, isn't it? That what's even more astonishing than Jesus' conviction of these tempters is that the same Lord permits such evil and wicked people to live. That though they deserve to have a millstone hung around their neck and be cast in the sea, they go on living. This is an injustice that many find uncomfortable with an almighty God permitting. You may recall a biblical account of a man who visited his king. And he told his king of a poor man whose property was destroyed by a rich neighbor who coveted what little the poor man had. And he took it for himself. The enraged king vowed to put to death this selfish rich man. You may know the story of when the prophet Nathan went to King David to confront him for murdering the husband of a woman he took as his wife to cover up for his crime of lusting over her and impregnating her. When the king laid down his edict, his judgment of death, the prophet declared to him, you're the man. You're the one who is guilty of this crime. So let me ask you, does our uncomfortable view of the Almighty God's injustice over sin change when we find that we are numbered among the tempters? That we are sadly counted among the wicked and evil who are permitted to live? Do we unjustly chase self-justification to cover up our sins? Don't we compare our sins to others and rank how not as bad they are to murder and other sick and gross things? We do. Each of us does this, for sure. And while there are sins which rightly have degrees of conviction this side of eternity in the courts of law, before God all sin stems from the ultimate sin of unbelief intrinsically woven into our DNA. And this fallen nature of ours mocks God, hates God, and is completely against God. In other words, it would be better if a millstone were hung around our neck and we were cast into the sea. It really is a horrific thought that we deserve an eternal conviction of death and hell. Yet there is something again even more astonishing than this eternal conviction. It is the reality that Jesus, for you and for me, willfully took, willfully took this eternal conviction in our place. 
that Jesus took the millstone of the cross and the drowning sea of death that we deserved. In a word, Jesus had mercy upon us. Mercy. Mercy is not receiving what is deserved. Mercy is forgiving what ought to be unforgivable. Mercy is a rare thing, an impossible thing that only Jesus makes possible. Well, Jesus tells his disciples, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Jesus is not soft on justice. He is quick to rebuke sinners. But he is just as quick to forgive us sinners. You must understand that God only deals with sinners None are like him. God alone is without a tempting spirit. He alone is faithful and just. And he wants nothing more than sinners repent and sinners forgive and that we sinners never stop forgiving. As the Lord forgave King David, he forgives you and he forgives me. Our Lord is gracious and merciful slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. This is what Christ has called us into. This is the mercy that Jesus has prepared our lives for, to be godly in living out the Lord's slow anger and abounding in his overflowing steadfast love, to give undeserved forgiveness because we too have received undeserved forgiveness. God has called us to forgive and called us to faith. And to this end, the apostles, hearing this of their Lord, cry out to him, increase our faith, believing that by the increase of their faith, they will be able to have the ability to forgive. And the Lord says to them, if you had faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. So, before you go home, and try this at home, before you attempt to uh, uproot trees and plant them in the sea by your faith, consider what Jesus is saying. The apostles are looking for a quantitative increase to their faith. Jesus tells them if they had just had a little bit of faith, that should do the trick. So what gives? The amount of faith isn't a good test. In fact, the apostles' question speaks to the way our hearts have been blinded by temptations. Just as we compare our sins to other sins, don't we also attempt to compare our faith to those who seemingly have more of it? We do. Our text switches here and calls the disciples apostles instead. Apostles, sent ones. As readers and hearers of this gospel, we are privileged to recognize this inspired adjustment and in calling of the disciples 
apostles now. What Jesus says to these sent ones and what we put together is that faith is a gift of God and that faith is God's work, not ours. So the gift of faith to the apostles is that these pastors will be all about the work of uprooting deeply rooted sins by a little word of forgiveness. Isn't it amazing? A little word of forgiveness, a mustard seed's worth of forgiveness covers a multitude of our sins. All in the stead and by the command of Jesus Christ. So that the gift of faith for all people is that sinners will encounter the work of God as he drowns their sins. As impossible as it is to uproot and plant a tree in the sea, God delivers on this impossibility to save sinners by uprooting his son from heaven and planting him in the womb of Mary. The cosmic implications of the Son of God being sent to save helpless mortals is a rattling accusation. It means that we are without the ability to save ourselves. It means faith is something. It means that faith is not something that can be increased since faith is already sufficient from the start. From the start, God gives us just from a little bit the whole lot. It means that faith works. Faith works despite our best efforts because it is from God. Here's what Jesus illustrates for us. Jesus illustrates this point with a story about a servant who put in a whole day's work but still must serve his master even more. And in the end, all that servant can really say is that he's an unworthy servant, having done what was only his duty. This final point in our gospel text only further makes the case of how our works before God earn us nothing. We don't receive God's praise for our faith since faith comes from God alone. We don't receive God's love because we've worked above and beyond. God's love is purely a gift. A gift that works don't earn, but it is a love which moves us to work according to God's commands. We don't work for God's love. It's freely given and has moved us according to the Holy Spirit to repent and to believe in Jesus. In the simplest terms that can be stated, we are unworthy servants, but Christ is the worthy servant whose life, whose death, and whose resurrection grants to us mercy, the mercy of God sufficient to make us worthy servants. So our worth comes not from within, but from the mercy of God. Oh, and how does God love to give you his mercy, to give you his peace that surpasses all understanding now, forever, and always. When we look at our text today, we find that the apostles were left hopeless on their own. That's not what the world tells us. It moves us to believe that we are capable and perfect just the way we are. It gives us a fairy tale way of life that is stopped dead in its tracks 
when we are faced with real-world judgments. Then, as if to ignore all of its cheerleading of us, the world turns on us and tells us to work harder, to push aside haters, to be unforgiving in our pursuit of our passions. I would call you to consider the witness of that brother and that father and the many others who have faced criminals in courtrooms when Christ's forgiveness embraced them and moved them to forgive. They had no other choice but to see the world differently and through God's eyes. Consider this, that as we are faced with the reality of the real world judgments that oppose us, when our backs are against a wall, and the only thing that we may lean upon is the mercy of Christ, then we see with our own eyes and feel within our own bones that it is only from God and only through his eyes that we may see this world the way he sees it. The Christian faith is nothing else than to see the world through God's eyes. To see the agony of Jesus upon the cross. To see his faith in the Father's will for him to die and rise from the dead. To see that rebirth is God's gift. To see God's work at hand. To see God's merciful plan. Your salvation. Each and every one of your each and every one of you is one for whom Christ died. Your salvation is God's merciful plan. To you, Jesus says, your sins, all of them, are forgiven. To you, Jesus has uprooted sin and drowned it in the sea, baptizing you into the drowning death of his cross and rising you in the resurrection to walk in newness of life as a new creation. You and I can only say we are unworthy servants. We've only done what was our duty. Left to our own, we could only fear God as he judges us from his heavenly throne. But God has caused our voices to rejoice instead and sing a different tune rooted in biblical words of Christ's redeeming love. Mercy is at the heart of our worship and drips off of our lips as we sing of Christ's merciful work to redeem us. And in the familiar words of the hymn, worthy is the Lamb whose death makes me his own. The Lamb is reigning on his throne. Your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. Amen.